0: For our Bible study this morning, would you join me in the book of Ephesians once again? Ephesians chapter 6, as we continue in a series that we are in calling the Believer's Armor. We know that this is the holiday weekend where there's a lot of celebration done for the greatness of America, and we understand, like it was stated by former president, but at the time General Eisenhower, that when he talked about the sacrifices that were made, he referred especially to D-Day that it wasn't at bargain prices. It cost an awful lot for us to have the freedom to be able to be here. On this day alone, that June 6th the attempt where they went and invaded with the largest armada of the known world at that time and landed at Normandy and the other beaches, 4,400 allied troops lost their life that day as well as several thousand more of the German troops. Freedom isn't cheap. This past week we had the opportunity to revisit the Uh, Gettysburg area and go to the museum. And it was just struck me once again freedom isn't cheap even though we take it for granted. The war devastation to just keep the Union as was the military casualties at that time and the wounded and the injured was over 1.5 million. and Then you start counting the deaths alone, how many there were that died in the battlefield. Then we start talking about how the population was devastated, one out of every four of those who were white, they white males in the South. They lost their lives during that war. And it wasn't just those individuals, the number of civilians unknown how many were killed when they were at the fray of the battle. And it wasn't just the death and the destruction that way, but even the economy. When we talk today and we say inflation is record high, and it is over the 40-year high, man, inflation at that time in two years was 700% in the South. In other words, to give you an idea, one pound of beef went from $1 to $8. Just to give an idea, a bushel of cornmeal went from $6 to $100. Just in that time period, a barrel of flour went from $30 to $1,000. And there's an amazing devastation that was done. And it was a time that you look back and you say, I'm sure glad I'm not living in that time period. And they were very heroic. Well, Ephesians 6 is reminding you and me that we are living in a time period where there is a war that's taking place. It isn't the same where you're seeing openly blood being shed. It isn't the same where the missiles like we saw last Wednesday in the Ukraine and some land right in the street and stay there without exploding and it's scary. What we're dealing with is a battle that is even scarier. You don't see the foe. You don't know where they're at you don't know when they're when they're coming nearby. Ephesians 6 is a whole chapter that or a whole section that is talking about we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and you read this section of this book and it's just Challenging, it's scary where he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, verse 10, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And then he goes on and he talks about what we need to do. We are in a spiritual battle, and it is for your soul. It is for the soul of your home. It is for the soul of your children, the soul of this church. It is even how we affect the neighborhood, how we affect our community. And in this battle, we we're, we're clearly have seen, we've talked at length about the enemy and how vicious they are, how powerful they are, how clever they are, how experienced they are. And in the text where we've been the last couple weeks, we're talking about the exhortations, the commands that God gives. And there's quite a few, but just to summarize, he says as he's wrapping up the book, he says, be strong in the Lord. Literally, let God strengthen you day in and day out. You've got to come to the Lord and take the time so he can energize you and give you the strength in the power of his might. You know what that means to me? With that little phrase, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, we can't do it on our own. We're not strong enough to defeat this enemy, to win this battle by ourselves. We must have time with the Lord. If you're going week by week, day by day, and you're not having time with the Lord to get strengthened, you're going to be beaten. You, I, we don't have the power in our own selves. It says that God never leaves us alone. He never lets us battle by ourselves. I've been reading, actually, audio listening, reading through another book on Napoleon. And we all know about Napoleon. We've heard about him in history, where he was this great warrior and he conquered much of Europe and, and other different areas into Africa and into Americas so that he had lands and regions held by the French. But there is something that he did consistently that was a negative. And he didn't get taken to task for it. When all of a sudden he invades Egypt, he wins a few battles. When all of a sudden the disease and the attacks on his troops were putting his army that he could not resupply, when the army started getting weaker, he said he was called back to France and could not stay any longer. And he deserted his own troops that were basically wiped out. He did the same thing when Spain was in their resistance. And he went there, and he said, I solved the problem in three months, though his military men could not defeat the Spaniards over a three-year period. He comes in and says, in three months I solved it all, and he left because he lost a battle. So he deserted his troops once again. We all know historically he invaded Russia. The winter was the enemy that wiped him out, and he left his troops another time. And we all know that when he was defeated at Waterloo, he left the battlefield when it started going against him. And then his troops were defeated. God is not like a Napoleon. God never deserts us. He never all of a sudden runs when it gets really tough. God clearly gives each and every one of us And he talks in this whole section, it's all plurals, you, 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 you all, you all. He says that he will give us the power we need to be able to resist the enemy. Now Paul is writing all this, and as he's sitting in jail writing these phrases, right over here near him is going to be one of those soldiers that is watching him, one of the Roman guards. And it just seems how as he's writing, he looks over and he sees this outfit of the Roman guard. And he knows that that outfit of that guard, that soldier, is so essential in battle that under the Spirit of God, Paul then starts writing about an analogy. Not only be strengthened in the Lord, but he goes on and he says, hey, you need to put on armor, spiritual armor. Just like the Roman soldier has this armor in order to help him, and they were really you know, they, were, they were well armed for the victories that they had, better than many of the armies in the ancient world. But he says, you've got to be putting on the whole armor of God. Not only will he give you the strength, but he's going to give you the armor that you need. He's going to supply it. And then what he does in this text, after he repeats it again in verse 13, that you've got to take this whole armor to yourselves, then he starts describing the pieces. And the very first piece we looked at last week, he says the first thing you got to take is the most unexpected piece of armor, that's the belt of truth. Well, we talked about it. We explained that this idea of this fastening, this girdle, this belt of truth, how it's the idea of being truthful, being honest, which makes perfect sense. Jesus is truth, Satan is a, is a liar. We know as well that what he's talking about, and we shared this last week, is you have to be honest about your commitments to Christ and your devotion to him very clear. Then he goes to a second piece of armor and he says you need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? What is the breastplate of righteousness? Well I know this. I know that according to the looking at the Roman soldier I can give you some description of what the breastplate was like. That it was this heavy fabric usually woolen or some leather and they would take and they would slice animal hoofs or they would take little pieces of metal flaps and sew it onto it so that it had the double protection. I know that it went from about here to about down here. I know that when we talk about it, it was designed to protect this area from any jab or some hard hit. So Almost like what we would talk about is you know, that, that uh, armor that the police would wear today you know, that they would have. But when we combine it with the breastplate of righteousness, exactly what is that? What is he talking about? What is he referring to? And as I was doing thinking about it and checking out other passages that that seemed to parallel some of this idea, three truths stood out that will help explain the breastplate of righteousness. The first truth is this. It's very clear from this text of saying, Take upon you the breastplate of righteousness, that God expects everyone here who is a believer to live a holy life. He ex- expects us to live a holy life. How do we get that? Where does that come from in the text? Well, let's start with this concept. In the Bible, there are three types of righteousness mentioned one is good, two are, one is bad, two are good. One of the righteousness that comes up in the Bible is. God talking about people who are self-righteous. That is, these people who are filled with pride, who think that they are good enough, that they, that they are strong enough, that they can make it on their own to heaven, that they don't need to pray and read the Bible or memorize Scripture, that they feel that they're a strong person, they're strong spiritually, and they don't need to work any further in, in spiritual growth because they have arrived. That's that self-righteousness. It's a negative in the Bible. It's condemned in the Bible. It's that idea that we saw Jesus take to task. When he told the story about a Pharisee, Pharisees were filled with self-righteousness. The religious leaders, the hoi polloi of their society, of their day. The Pharisee is there in the temple and he's praying to God and he's very proud of what he has done. And God, thank you that I am able to be as good as I am and as holy as I am. And there's another man that comes in who's a publican, a tax collector, who were usually considered the scourge of society, the evil people. And that tax collector is coming in and he's bowed in humility and he's saying to the Lord forgive me, I am a wicked person. And the Pharisee in this story that Jesus relates, the Pharisee even comes to point thank you that I am not like that person. Modern day Pharisees are common. Thank you that I am so much better that I don't promote abortion. Thank you that I don't promote the transgender thing. Thank you that I am so good that I have memorized all the books of the Bible and I am just this, that, and the other thing. I don't need you day by day because I'm pretty good. I don't do as evil as they do. And Jesus condemned that. And in this text what what we run into is we find that there's a lot of people that that he writes to in the book of Ephesians. There's a lot of people that are self-righteous. In fact there's a question that we encourage you to ask. As you share the gospel one of the ways that you can share the gospel is you're talking to somebody and you can say hey if you were to stand before the Lord today and the Lord were to say why should I let you come into heaven what would you answer? And you're going to get an idea of what they're thinking. And if they say, I don't know what I'd answer, what do you think you might say? And they might say a lot of these things. That for a lot of people indicates a self-righteous spirit. That I'm a good person. I've been baptized. I go to such and such a church. I get good grades. I give money. I'm a good citizen. And it's all about I and me. That's self-righteousness. That is what is condemned in the scriptures. In fact, it is condemned already earlier in this passage. Go back a couple chapters. And notice what he said in Ephesians chapter two, where he's writing to these people, and he is making it very clear. He said, You hath he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And he describes these individuals who were in this church, he said, In the time past, we all had our conversation time past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature. We were birthed this way. We were not born children of God. We were birthed children of wrath. That is, we were opposing God with our sin nature from the very beginning, even as others. And he talks about how you can't keep on relying on your own goodness because you don't have any He makes it clear in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and especially not of yourselves. It didn't come by something you did, by baptism or, or good works. It is a gift of God. Then he repeats the concept, not of works, lest any man should what? Stand before God and say, I'm good enough. And the bottom line is, no, we're not. No, we're not. Avoid self-righteousness. We know that. We know that that is something condemned in scripture. That's one righteousness. But there's another righteousness. This is a good one. This is a positive. We might call it sanctification righteousness. That our salvation righteousness. Excuse me. Salvation righteousness. This is sometimes called positional in theological terms. Positional righteousness. The idea is this. The idea is that you have come to a place like these people did that you realize that you are a sinner you cannot get to heaven by yourself on your own good works and you needed to call upon Christ who died, buried and resurrected to pay for your sins you need to call upon him to give you the gift of forgiveness. You call by faith and you say I don't deserve a gift but God please forgive me of all my sins and to give me the gift of eternal life. So we get righteousness at that moment. When we call, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon his name shall be saved. What happens at that moment? At that moment, God all of a sudden shares the righteousness of Christ with you. So that when God looks at you, God doesn't see your sin anymore, but he sees you covered by the righteousness of Christ. For he, God, made Jesus to be sin for us who never knew any sin. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him or through him we read that in the book of Romans Abraham believed God and it was given to his account put to his to him the idea righteousness given to him out of his response in faith We read elsewhere, to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. We read as well, it was imputed to him for righteousness, for us also it was put to our account if we believe on him that was raised from the dead. This is a righteousness that we realize we don't have in and of ourselves. We've stopped being self-righteous. We've turned to Christ and say, give me some of your righteousness to cover me. That's salvation righteousness. That's what God gives us. And then in positionally, we are in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees us in Christ. Therefore, we're able to get into heaven. Now that's a second righteousness in Scripture. There is a third type of righteousness. It's called sanctification righteousness. This is practical righteousness. This is for the believers who have already been born again and it is you putting on Christ, acting like Christ. You've been saved by Him, now live like Him. Now that's going to involve you growing up to be more and more what God wants you to be. The idea here is you are going to say let me become more and more like Christ because God wants me to be more like Christ. And this is for all New Testament believers. Everyone who is born again, the command from God is put on Christ. Keep doing this day after day after day. Keep on saying, what would Christ do? How would I be more like Christ? This is why God saved you. He calls you, he says, I beseech you, make yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service. Why? Because he said, whom he did foreknow, he predestinated us not to become saved. He predestinated the saved to become like Christ. That's God's plan for you. That's why God brings trials in your life. That's why God gives you his word to make you every day to become more like Jesus, more like Jesus, more like Jesus, to walk like him, to talk like him, to treat one another the way he would treat. To share the word the way Jesus would share. To worship when we come to worship. To act more and more like Christ. Look at Ephesians 4. Look what he has said already in this chapter. Writing to the believers. He's already called them to this. Where earlier in the chapter he has said to them, you have not so learned Christ. That is, living the way you used to live. Chapter 4, verse 21. If so be that you have heard him and you've been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. You go to the next chapter. Look what he says in chapter 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children In other words, look like your father in heaven. Oh, you got celebrities that do this all the time. People of renown that they mimic what they were when they were children and they dress up like their parents so that you look and say there's a great similarity. Let me ask you this question. How much do you look like Jesus this week? Were you dressed like Jesus in your speech? Were you dressed like Jesus in your reaction to difficulties? In your speech, did you forgive like Jesus forgave? Did you love like Jesus loved? Did you, did you pray the way Jesus would pray? That's the idea of sanctification, righteousness. You are coming and growing day by day. You want to see an example? of all three of these righteousnesses? Look at, take your Bibles and flip over to the next book, Philippians. Chapter 3, Paul is sharing his personal story. He's giving his own, what, what he was like. And he starts off saying, hey, before I was born again, I was, a, I was a religious leader. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He talks about it in verses 4 through 6 about his self-righteousness. What he used to be like. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh I the more. Circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching a law of Pharisee concerning zeal. I persecuted the church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law. I did everything perfectly. I was blameless. And he says that wasn't enough he realized that that was going to take him to hell. So what did he do? In verse 9 he says, I needed to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. I came to realize that I needed Christ to be my Savior. And the way that I got saved was by putting my faith in him. And then what happens after that? He says in verse 10, he says that I may continually know him, the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death he goes on verse 12 not as though I had already attained either were already perfect but I keep following after so that I may apprehend that which I have been apprehended for verse 14 I press towards I keep on pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus he is working his salvation out in the sense of becoming more and more like Christ. So what do you do? Okay, where does this all lead? Which one is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about put on the breastplate of self-righteousness. We know that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about you put on the, the breastplate of salvation. That can't be. They're already saved. Go to chapter 1, verse 1. He calls them the saints which are in the church of Ephesus. He's already said, you were in the past but now you have been saved through faith. So he's not telling them to get saved over. We know that that's not true. What he's telling them is put on the breastplate of sanctification. Christlikeness day after day, day after day. We've already read part of this text where he says be as dear children where in chapter 5 he's encouraged them you were in you were at times in verse 8 in the darkness but now you are children of light therefore walk as children of light look at chapter 5 verse 15 see then that you keep walking circumspectly not as fools, but, but as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil wherefore you be not unwise but keep understanding what the will of the Lord is he is calling each and every believer here to a lifestyle of holiness, of Christ-likeness. If you're born again, God wants you to become holy, to grow in Christ. I see a second truth, a second truth, that this personal righteousness is essential to living a victorious life. You cannot, you cannot live a life pleasing unto God without putting on this breastplate of righteousness, without determining that I'm going to become more like Christ. It's an impossibility. He says in this text, you need to put on the whole armor of God in order to withstand, to stand. He's made that comment not once, but twice in this text. You cannot stand without the armor. You've got to have personal righteousness. That is the sense of you need to work at becoming Christ-like every day, more and more and more, or you're not going to have a victorious Christian life. It won't happen. Let me see if I can illustrate a little bit more. The piece of armor that we're talking about covered this part of your abdomen. That it was this vest that was going to help you. Reason that it was so important is it was protecting your heart. We all understand that. We understand the importance of the heart. But if we step back into Bible days and understand what they meant by the heart, this is really, really important. That we would say, okay, what's he talking about? He is talking about the way you think. You see, in the Bible context, they, they thought that the heart is how you think, your will, that it was here. You and I talk more about here, our mind. This was where your mind was in Bible days, that you were, whatever your heart was, that's who, what you became. That's how you thought. Where he talks about this is the area that determines whether you are righteous or unrighteous. It's not what you do on the outside, it's what this is like on the inside. Jesus made that very clear. And so what he's talking about in this text is in order for you to protect your mind, to think right, you've got to have on the breastplate of righteousness. It also goes a little bit further. They would think that this area was the seat of your emotions, we today think it's the heart. But they would say this is where your emotions were. The reason they would say that is because these ideas of when you get nervous, when you get upset, it affects the abdomen. And they would say that's your emotional storage place. That's why they made this comment whosoever sees somebody without the world's goods and shuts up his compassion, bowels of compassion that's why they would say this, we have great joy in that your love has refreshed the bowels of the saints. We wouldn't say it this way today. Back in Bible days they might. I love you with all my intestines. <laughs> but that's where they're, now, now you understand what they're talking about. When you talk about the breastplate of righteousness you gotta, you got to protect your mind and you got to protect your feelings. Now, take it a little bit further. I've got to then be, be very careful that I'm Christ-like in how I think, oops, sorry, how I think and how I feel. What I do for joy. That, that is just repeatedly given in Scriptures. Repeatedly we, we hear this idea, read this idea, that he that abides in Christ, this is your Christ, I walk even as he walk. How does that work? Let this mind be in you that was in Christ, that you put others first rather than yourself. That's the text. He talks about this, be therefore as followers of God as dear children, walk in love as Christ loved. He he talks elsewhere, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church not like your dad did or like your brothers do but as Christ loved the church. He calls us, he says, this is a commandment I'm giving you. Love one another as I have loved you. It's all about acting like Jesus. Seeing Jesus in your life. Acting, talking, doing more and more what Jesus would do. We read, whosoever will be chief amongst you. He says to them, he says, you have to serve others. For even the Son of Man came to be ministered, uh, uh, not to be ministered unto, but to serve others. You have to have that mind of Christ. I then, if I, your Lord, have washed your feet, then I've given you an example. Minister. Do the unlovely tasks for others. Instead of expecting others to do for you, you do for them. The idea of forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If anybody has a problem, even as Christ forgave you, you're supposed to respond in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit towards others the way Christ has responded to you. If any man will come after me, you got to imitate Christ. Pick up your cross daily. The Bible is replete with the idea of following and mimicking Jesus Christ. And if you don't do it, he says, you don't have on this breastplate, you aren't going to have victory. It's essential to having victory. There's a third truth. The third truth that stands out in this text is this, that you you are personally responsible for some of your own righteousness now god has to give you the initial righteousness but then it's on you to help it to develop here in the text the reason i say it is this why is this reason because he says all of you begin to take they're already saved you who are believers begin to take to yourself he says the whole armor, which includes this idea of you taking on righteousness. In other words, everyone in this room, you're in a battle. We talked about it. We've stated it. Everyone is in this battle. You, you can't get out of it if you're born again. You're going to be under attack. You know, back in the Civil War era, they passed in 63, was it? Yeah, they passed a law which all of a sudden all the men in the northern area, they had to you know, basically sign up so they were eligible for the draft. But they passed with that law that somebody who didn't want to go to battle could pay a fee of $300 and find somebody else to take their place, and they wouldn't have to go. You might have to pay that somebody else some money, maybe somebody who's already served their time, and then you get out of it. The, the reason that Teddy Roosevelt spoke of it—he thought his dad was so heroic. He thought his dad was just amazing, but he was almost he was—he was dumbfounded that his dad paid somebody three hundred dollars to serve in the in the front lines in his place. His dad was wealthy enough to do it, and he himself thought that that was terrible—that you would send somebody in your place. Well, my friend here in, in where we're living today, you aren't going to be able to bail yourself out of this if you're born again, if you're truly born again. Now, some of you may be sitting here and you're not under satanic attack. There's a good reason you're not. You're not, you're not born again. Whether you come to this church or whether you listen to this, you may not truly be born again. So Satan's, Satan's already got you in his claws, in his chains, in his, in his domain, in, under his influence. But if you're born again, you are going to be attacked. You are going to have opposition to what you try to do. It's going to be a battle. And in this battle, you got to take the personal righteousness, the mindset, the heart set that I want to be like Christ. I want to live like Christ. I want to respond like Christ. If you aren't thinking that way, if you aren't working that way to be more Christ-like, you're going to be beaten. In other words, this armor that God gives you, this thought of being Christ-like is there. He's given it to you. But you've got to put it on. You've got to dress yourself. You've got to take it to yourself. I can't put it on you. Your parents can't put it on you. Your spouse can't put it on you. You have got to adopt the mindset, I want to be like Christ. I want to respond like Christ. You've got to purpose that every day yourself. Nobody else can put it on you. In fact, this idea that, that this armor that God says I'm giving to you, you put it on, it, it's cute, and it's normal. And we can dress them up however we want. You can put the bows, you can put all the, all the frilly stuff on the girls, on the guys, you can put your macho man, whatever you want on the baby. And you can dress them up. But if they're 13 and you're dressing them, that's not normal, okay? In fact, the normal is even as they get a little bit older by even a a year, year and a half they want to dress themselves. They can't the shoes are on the wrong side, the shirt may be backwards well that happens to us adults anyway, but um, (laughs) you know, it's normal and natural that if you're growing you're dressing yourself until you get to a point where you're too feeble But we would say it's abnormal if somebody isn't dressing themselves as a teenager, as an adult. We would say that's abnormal. Something's wrong. Well, then something's wrong if you sit here week after week and you walk away and you are not putting on Christ-like thoughts. You are not purposing to respond like Jesus. Something is wrong with you. If you walk away and you say, and you never ask yourself, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? It is normal, natural for a growing person to dress themselves spiritually in the armor of God. It is normal. It is needed. It's something that you have the responsibility to do. By the way, you can't force this on somebody else. You can't make somebody else think Christ-like thoughts. You can't force them, oh yes, I can tell them, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. But if they don't want to be like Christ, all the outward stuff they do isn't going to make any difference. Then it becomes legalism. And So we, we have to make sure we're dressing ourselves. We have to take it to ourselves. So putting on this, this righteousness, this thought, it is essential, something you need to do for yourself. And yet people real, don't even realize the problem. Now somebody was sharing with me, I've never been in the Air Force, but somebody who was a pilot born again believer several years ago shared with me what they went through in training. That at that time they would go into this chamber that it was able to adjust the pressures of the air. And what they would do is they wanted to help the pilots to understand that there is a need to, carry, to have this oxygen mask on when you get to certain levels. Because without it, all of a sudden you can suffer oxygen deprivation. And it'll come upon you in such a way that you won't even realize what's happening. But it'll follow up your thinking. So he said that what they did in their training program is they paired them up, put them in this chamber and they would have the one person who didn't have the mask on writing down things that they were told to write down. The partner would have on the mask and we monitoring what this person is writing just watching. And it never failed, he said. It happened all the time. As all of a sudden, he said, like in his case, he was writing the stuff that he was hearing, and all of a sudden, his partner, then they were adjusting the oxygen levels and trying to mimic different altitudes. All of a sudden, his partner slapped his mask on his face. And he said he didn't realize what would happen until he looked down at the paper. And all of a sudden, his writing became very illegible, scribble, made no sense. But he didn't even realize what was happening. He was being oxygen-deprived and didn't realize. Some of you are Christ-like deprived. You're not thinking like him. You're not acting like him. You're not purposing. And you don't even realize how bad it's getting. You don't even realize how you're not loving your wife the way you're supposed to love like Christ. You're not even realizing anymore your forgiveness, your lack of forgiveness is not Christ-like. You don't even realize anymore this, this attitude of servanthood is gone. You don't even realize anymore that your response to trials is so different from Christ. So what do we do? What do we do in order to make sure that we're putting on this breastplate of righteousness day in and day out? what do we do? We take time to be with the Lord. And when we're with the Lord, we make sure that we confess anything that would hinder Christlikeness. We confess sin. You've got to be doing this every day. If you're not confessing sin, what's going on? Are you that perfect? That's self-righteousness. There's got to be confession. There's got to be a purposefulness in your, in your prayer time, a purposefulness in your life that you're saying, I want to be like Christ. Strengthen me to become more like Christ. Put it, help me to put on the mind of Christ. Help me to put on the spirit of Christ. There needs to be a resistance, a determination to stay away from that which is ungodly that which is taking you down the wrong way. That's why he says in this passage, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and right with it, make no provision for the flesh. They're contrary to one another. You cannot be putting on the Lord Jesus and then going into places or being around people that will act totally opposite of Christ and tear you down. It just can't go together. He says as well in the text that we need to have that putting on that strengthening by taking in the word. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. That idea of prayer. We'll talk about that in three weeks. This whole aspect of being strengthened. But you've got to be thinking and asking yourself throughout the day, what would Christ have me to do? What would Christ have me to do? And then Holy Spirit help me to act like Christ. Help me to do this it all revolves around this idea of purposing to be like Jesus the way you talk to your parents your family members the way you worship the way you pray the way you work are you like Christ there is something that they that i read i've never observed it haven't taken the time But when crows, and we've got plenty of them out here that could demonstrate how they attack other birds, when the crows are cawing and they're after a hawk, the account as I've read talks about the hawks have a way of getting away from the crows. They just start circling higher and higher and higher and higher till they get above the crows. The higher they go, the less the crows will bother them. Start thinking about that, how true it is spiritually. That when we draw nigh unto God, the Bible says that He will draw nigh unto us, and it goes on right in the same text, resist the devil, and he's gonna flee. So I ask you this morning with this question, How close to God have you gotten this week? Are you getting closer? Closer and closer? Well, the demonstration is gonna be is how Christlike have you been. How Christlike have you been. There's a song that we sing that talks about Jesus being seen in us. The second stanza is a wonderful stanza. It is when God and I meet in heaven, what will God say? What will God see? And the stanza very simply says, when I stand before my Father to receive my life's reward, my soul is bathed in God's eternal day. He says, when this race on earth is run and God sees the work I've done... More than anything, I long to hear my father say, this is what I want God to say. We have some church family that very simp- very clearly maybe this week they're going to be in the presence of the Lord. They would want this to be said to them. We have others who are living lives who are so dedicated they want to hear this when their life is ended. If God came and walked in our presence today, which he's not going to do, but if he did, would you hear him say this? Would you hear him say, I saw Jesus in you? I saw him in you. I could hear his voice. His voice was in the words the way you talked. I saw him in you in a way that, the way you cared for other people this week, you were so Christ-like the way you faithfully served and ministered to others, I saw Jesus. Is that what Christ would say about you? Father, I pray, help us. Help us to be Christ-like. Not just in what we're doing as a group, but how we live when we leave this place, how we act towards one another, how we talk to our family, how we work in our workplace how we do what we're supposed to do, how we respond to trials, how we go out of our way to minister to other people even though it's inconvenient. Help us to be Christ-like. Help us to share the gospel the way Christ would have us to share the gospel, to love others, to forgive others the way Christ would. Father, we long to hear you say, I saw Jesus in you. I pray, give me the strength, give me the help that one day you may be able to say that to me and to my friends. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and I ask you sincerely, are you sure that you're on your way to heaven, or are you relying upon your own self-righteousness? We want to, just as we close in prayer, give you an opportunity to talk with somebody. That if you are here today, and you have been relying upon baptism, or church, or something of your own, You could get up right now and walk to the side of the auditorium, to the right side of the auditorium. There's a door and some people are standing there waiting to show you from the Bible how you can be sure you're going to heaven. You can do that right now. Right now. Or afterwards for a few minutes, I'll stay here at the front. Don't rely on yourself to get to heaven. You won't make it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth of life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You need Christ. Christian, you need to live like Christ. Father, bless these people as they do that this week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.